You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, I speak with David Blake, who is co-founder and CEO of Degreed. Millions of individuals and hundreds of organizations use Degreed's platform to discover and answer for all of their learning and skills. He also started another company called Book Club. Prior to Degreed, he helped launch a competency-based accredited university and was a founding team member of university admissions startup Zilch. David was selected as a top EdTech entrepreneur by the Stanford D School EdTech Lab, sponsored by Teach for America and the New Schools Venture Fund. We talk about the surprising downside of curiosity, how artificial intelligence impacts learning and earning. We talk about the growing skills gap, talk about the best way to hire, how he learned to be a founder, and the book he thinks best captures what it's like to be a founder. I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Welcome to the show. Thanks for so much for coming on. Thanks. Appreciate it. This will be fun. So let's jump right in. I'm really curious if you have any tips for listeners on how to be a better lifelong learner. Yeah. I mean, I think I ask audience a couple of questions when I'm around the world talking to people about lifelong learning. And the one I find the best way to get started is to be intentional and to have a goal. And if you ask people, do you have a goal for your learning right now? I typically only see a couple of hands raised in you know, the sea of the audience. And so that and that alone will set you apart as one of the more dedicated lifelong learners. Be intentional, set a goal. What are examples of goals you think are effective? Yeah, I mean, one of the most powerful, education is a pretty organic and messy thing. Um, as much as we try and systematize it and standardize it, it really is a pretty personalized, organic, and messy thing. But one of, and so it avoids silver bullets, if you will. But one of the best things to improve outcomes in learning is to have it be contextualized in the real world, to have it be contextualized in your real life. And so you are going to get more out of your learning if you are learning about the stuff that you care about, that you're working on, that's relevant to your job, that's relevant to your goals, that's relevant to your side hustle. And interestingly, curiosity used to be correlated with positive learning cultures, but curiosity is actually, and this is research that degreed in Harvard um, Business Publishing did jointly, curiosity is actually negatively correlated with positive learning outcomes now. And it draws out a pretty stark, you know, people would say, whoa, like, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty sacred territory. Curiosity is good. Curiosity is the heart of, you know, human um, drive and, and what's gotten us to the stars. And um, curiosity was powerful in a world where information was inaccessible and scarce. And sometime in the last 15 years, the lines crossed for the first time in human history, where information is now abundant, accessible, free, and overwhelming. So what curiosity gets you these days is down a you know, physics rabbit hole on 
YouTube or, or TikTok, but it doesn't actually correlate with good learning outcomes anymore. What correlates with good learning outcomes is intentionality and contextualizing the learning. So make it something you really care about. Learn for purpose sake. Learn not for curiosity's sake. So I think what you're saying is if you're learning only about things that interest you without a clear direction to it, you won't absorb and really be able to apply that learning. Yeah, exactly. Or lesser so, less so. Yeah, wow, that does push my buttons. I say, wow, aren't so many things <laughs> discovered and known in the realms of creativity and science because people were curious about something and asked a question that didn't seem instrumentally connected with their goals today. I think perhaps yeah, what you're, you're saying is if you're learning something that's already known, you don't necessarily want to be driven by curiosity. Well, what you said is powerful, you know, which is at some point you do need sort of some exploration to your learning, you know, to find the boundaries, to have the collision of random kind of ideas come and connect together and spark something new. But the difference is, is that in today's world, that essentially already is happening to you. So, I mean, you log on to the internet and you don't actually have to be that curious of a person to like very quickly, you know, gain exposure to lots of different and random things. So it's a still, it's a powerful thing that is requisite and in innovation and, you know, exploration and, and setting new frontiers and boundaries, but it largely is going to happen whether or not you try. The difference is, is that in today's world, you have to try really hard to stay focused in a world full of infinite wisdom, information, outlets for your, and, and competition for your attention. So the attribute or the skill that makes someone a super learner today tends to be these kind of editorial skill set, being able to focus, being able to contextualize, being able to curate, being able to filter, being able to identify wisdom. Those are the things that make for a super learner now. I wanted to underline something else you said about transferability of skills. If it's not contextualized, if you're not doing it in the manner that you're going to be eventually using it, research seems to show that people are really bad at taking it to another context. I'm not actually familiar with uh, the research there to, to give sort of any commentary, but I do think that that equation has been a valuable one, you know, inside the last 10, 15, 20 years, which is a breakthrough, an insight, you know, and the collision of it in a new industry or field. You know, and I think we saw this with, I mean, at some point we saw this just with the internet and with software, the expression software is eating the world. And what we saw is just, you know, slowly the ways in which software could solve problems marched its way through every industry. You know, your dentist didn't used to run a lot of software and now your dentist's office runs an enormous amount of software. And we're kind of at that frontier yet again with AI, which is, AI is being used in some of the most obvious and surface level ways today. You know, I asked ChatGPT, what is the most common asked question on ChatGPT from users? And it responded with, you know, it's book, um, movie and television recommendations. So, you know, people are using this breakthrough technology in kind of a very superficial way at the moment. But what we're going to find is it will eventually march through every niche, every industry, every vertical, 
until it's, you know, filled sort of every nook and cranny. And if you're saying, you know, people don't tend to be good at kind of applying a principle or a learning or an insight across, you know, domains, then I would maybe say that sounds like if you're good at it, that's going to hold a premium. You mentioned AI. How do you expect that changes the way we'll be learning in the future? Yeah, I mean, I tried to really push my own thinking on this. The Bill Gates popularized the saying, we tend to overestimate what we can get done in a year and we tend to underestimate what we can do in a decade. And I think as we think about these kind of breakthrough technologies, I think that kind of is a, that truism applies, which is we probably are overestimating how dramatically it's going to change the world this year. And I don't even think we can comprehend really how dramatically it'll change the world inside of this decade. And so the honest truth is it's, you know, it's just hard to push sort of our human comprehension beyond sort of the boundary of what we've ever known. And I do think AI is going to do that. I think, you know, what the, calculator was to math sort of uh ai is going to be to many many other fields and it's going to change you know what you have to know it's going to have it's going to change what skills are sort of requisite to be successful it'll change what skills and attributes carry a premium. And again, just going back to where we started, which is this shift, you know, curiosity used to carry a huge premium in the human existence. And right now it actually doesn't like that is pretty radical. That's pretty fundamental. I mean, just thinking about the attributes that will carry premiums will shift and will change. I think right now, sort of the kind of lazy, I think it's lazy thinking is that, and I just read an article, I think it was in Fast Company yesterday, which is, you know, an example of this, which is like, AI will never be empathetic. You know, the the safe skills of the future are the most human skills. Empathy, you know, is the untouchable frontier. Well, 10 years ago, we actually said, you know, creativity, you know, software, computers, their computational engines, what's going to be safe? Well, design's going to be safe. And fashion is going to be safe and being a writer, you know, a creative writer is going to be safe. Just this morning, I looked at the writer's guild is going on strike right now. And they posted essentially kind of their kind of issues that are going on strike over and AI is one of them. I mean, like AI can now do that very creative job. There was research done regarding doctors and AI in terms of which has a better bedside manner and um, providing information. And it was done blind and people preferred AI. They said that AI had a better bedside manner than the actual doctors did in presenting medical information. And so I think it's actually pretty lazy thinking to think that like somehow the answer is, you know, empathy and creativity those are the safe boundaries or those are, those are the kind of the safe domains. And I think it's just going to really be more about the shifting the mix of what carries the premium. And, and I think it's still pretty hard to, you know, look out to that horizon and, and have too, too much clarity. It does seem fascinating to think about a personalized learning tutor that is patient and personified and follows you throughout your life as a learner. Yeah. One of the things we know is one of the best interventions is personalized tutoring. So for learning outcomes and up to this point, that's had to be done 
well, not that long ago, the only people who got personalized tutoring were the, the wealthy, the affluent, you know, and then in kind of recent years that started to be democratized by marketplaces, kind of the gig economy, allowing teachers to come on and, and tutor for one or two hours a week to supplement their income. You know, that created, that brought personalized tutoring to a much, much bigger sort of chunk of the population. And just as you said, I mean, what's going to truly democratize it? Yeah. I mean, AI tutors, I mean, they already are showing up and they are in short order going to be kind of anywhere you go to learn, you will be able to ask, you know, that problem that you are stuck on that step in the math problem and have it explained to you. And, you know, you and I are both old enough to know that when we got sent home with our math homework, you know, and you got stuck, your resources were your parents, however good or not they were at math, maybe an older sibling, if you had one, going to the back of the textbook and just finding the answer to the problem and trying to reverse engineer it or rereading, you know, rereading the textbook. I mean, we like didn't actually have very meaningful in the moment resources once you got stuck and just think how powerful it is now that, you know, wherever you get stuck on that math problem, like if not already by, you know, tomorrow or the next day, people are going to be learning with these AI tutors just in the flow of the learning, in the flow of the problem solving. So given all of this, how is the role of an organization, a company changing and are they seeing results from investing in learning? Yeah, I mean, here's, um, let me answer the back half of that question first, and then hopefully I can remember to come back to the front half of the question. But um, India is the only country left in the world that is not projected to have a skills gap inside this decade. And that's because they still have enough of the population coming online into the middle class through their educational pipelines that they have India, it's the only country left, but they have more supply than demand in terms of skilled, educated um, labor. And so the entire rest of the world, China included, the entire rest of the world is now facing a growing skills gap. And the there's no expectation that this will ever change ever again. The, the human In human history, we've faced industrial revolutions in the past. But those were moments where there was a technological breakthrough and it took humanity sort of a generation to adjust and adapt to that fundamental breakthrough technology. The difference is, is it's not about the rate at which technology is advancing, even though that is accelerating. That's not what is so radical. What is radical uh, is the rate at which technology can scale. And the rate at which technology can scale has now outpaced the rate at which humanity can learn, adapt, and adjust. And so what that means is, is that the skills gap is getting bigger every day, week, month, year, and there's no expectation that it will ever close ever again. And the silver lining to that is that the premium on skills is going up and up and up and up. And therefore, any person or team or company or country that is willing to invest in upskilling, the ROI on that investment is also going up and up. And so it's fairly 
I do believe dramatic and radical. And it's a kind of moment in human history that is totally, you know, uncharted territory. But the silver lining to it all is, is that the ROI for upscaling is getting better every day. And so if you become a good learner, if you get good at upskilling yourself, the ROI on it is is going up, not down. That's for an individual, yes? Yeah, for individuals, that's also true as you aggregate that up. So companies that get good at learning, companies that good get good at upskilling, uh, the ROI uh, is going up for them. And the relative advantage relative to others is also going up. And I think we're going to see, you know, big, huge shifts coming sort of on that front. And one thing I'll just reference is, so historically, you know, we really, the organizing unit of a, of an organization was the role, the job role, the job function, your job title, you know, you filled a role and that's the unit or the level at which we compensate people, organize, um, do organizational design. And that's, that is being broken down sort of unbundled now to the level of skill. So it feels radical to say this today, but I do believe 10 years from now, it'll just be so normal and standard is to feel unspectacular. But today we pay you based on effectively your geography and your job role. 10 years from now, we will pay you based on the combination of your skills because skills is becoming, will become the organizing unit of organizations around the world. And we are just on the doorstep of this. And so even the most innovative companies are only now stepping into this skills-based organization and, and the skills orientation and the skills strategy. And so the, the amount of research that we have on this is still pretty small, but it's starting to come. And McKinsey did research, it's now about three months old, that shows that skills-based hiring, hiring based on the skills someone has, is 3.5x more effective than hiring based on um, academic pedigree and credentials, which, you know, degrees mission, we say is to jailbreak the degree. I have long been a, an advocate of jailbreaking the degree and, and getting to micro-credentials in a world where we get credit for all of our learning. So hopefully that doesn't surprise certainly anyone who knows me or degreed. Skills-based hiring is 3.5x more effective than academic hiring based on academic pedigree or credentials. But here's the kind of blow your mind part, which is skills-based hiring is twice as effective as hiring based on your work experience. And that's how 95% of the world operates today is you qualify yourself for an interview or an opportunity based on the work experience that you've had, you know, most immediately prior to um, that, but also the history of your work experience. And it's not that it's 20% more effective. It's not marginally more effective. It's 2x more effective. Hiring someone based on their skills is twice as effective as hiring someone based on their work experience. You know, and that's radical. That is just, you know, that will, um, that advantage, those who mobilize to skills-based hiring will have such a premium, will have such an advantage that the rest of the market will have to, you know, follow suit or risk being obsoleted, you know, very, very quickly. And so at this point, I really do believe the advantages are so acute. They're so poignant that, 
you know, we are very, very quickly going to be operating in a world that is organized around skill. So that does sound powerful. Help make this more concrete for our listeners. Can you tell a story or give an example with or without names of what skill-based hiring looks like and what the impact is? I mean, if you want, I mean, a couple of, so the CEOs of one of the big four accounting firms talked, um, just gave a public address about how many of the roles they've shifted to skills-based hiring. And, you know, she ended up in tears as she recounted sort of the stories inside of the organization. You know, I think just now we, the CEO of IBM just said that they are pulling down 5,700 roles because they are the skills that are going to be automated by AI. So, I mean, those are maybe evidences of the ways we're seeing it show up in the market, you know, truly personalized stories. There aren't a lot of them because the world has only just now begun to do this. I think the skill of it is, you know, starting to speak the language of skills. So you've got to be able to say, you know, we, you know, we are trying to accomplish X and it requires skills A, B, C, and D. And that is a different than we want a, you know, a software engineer who will be on staff, who will do work to accomplish, you know, the organization's goals, ends, and means sort of as they come up. And, you know, we want five to seven years of experience and bachelor, you know, university degree required, you know, so the, the skill of it is to speak, is to speak that language. I mean, part of this for me is degreed. I haven't hired based on academic credentials or pedigree ever. So I don't have a lot of compare and contrast. I've always been oriented more this way, but just recently had one of our executives that agreed, you know, tell their story and pulled out. And I didn't know this about them, but they pulled out the college acceptance letters that they had saved and they pulled out acceptance letters from, I mean, essentially like maybe a third of the Ivy league and, you know, 10, 12, 14 of sort of top 50 schools. And they were an athlete. So a lot of this was they had been recruited as an athlete, but they, you know, based on personal reasons, didn't end up going to, you know, one of those top universities. And, you know, talked about how degreed, you know, what attracted them to degreed is this individual, while they, you know, could have, were talented um, enough to, you know, go and to get one of those Ivy League, you know, credentials, degrees, sort of that stamp, that pedigree, you know, their personal situation had taken them in another direction and, you know, and just how deeply they believe in a world where they had felt in their career, you know, not being, you know, a Stanford grad, not being a Harvard grad, sort of all the times that they saw others with those pedigrees have doors open to them, but, you know, not having that piece of paper, those doors, you know, didn't open and feeling like they had to, you know, spend their entire career having to justify um, their, their talents and their success, having to work harder than everyone else to, to show, you know, that they were, you know, talented. And what brought them to degree was this personal belief that we need, we need a world. It's a better world where it doesn't matter how or where you developed your skills just that you did. And I really do believe that that's going to dramatically give us a different world where right now, and the world is changing pretty fast, but the opportunities that are available to people with college degrees 
versus those who aren't, you know, it's still dramatically an uneven playing field. Just talked to the CEO of another company in the space who served under President Bush, but had a, um, a huge, hugely successful career. But, you know, as we got talking about this, he talked about, he said, I'm not a college grad. And he said, I don't talk about it often. I don't bring it up because I've had to work so hard to be so successful as to sort of clear the hurdle that people were uninterested or in asking that question or willing to, to look past it, you know, made it to the top levels of government, was able to be massively successful, but also, you know, in the private moments, shares essentially the, you know, the, the scarlet letter that, you know, they felt sort of shame of and tried to hide their entire career that they weren't, you know, a college grad. And that's just crazy. I mean, it really, really is just crazy. You know, we've got to, we've got to paint a different world. I agree with you. It's very inspiring to think about people not focusing on background, but looking at what are capabilities and what can people achieve now and what outcomes can we do together? What do you say to people who think that college degrees are primarily about signaling value and not learning skills anyway? I believe, so Michael Spence is an economist and he won a Nobel Prize for this work. So it's already been empirically proven. Uh, college degrees work whether or not you learn anything. Like what you are paying for in college is the credential. It is the signal. And college works whether or not you learn anything. College empirically, you know, what it is is a filtering. It's a filtering and a signaling machine. It's not actually a learning machine. Learning is like icing on the cake. College, how we use it is a filtering and a signaling machine. So, I mean, just, I mean, I'm happy to have that debate, but I'm, I've operated um, entirely premised that that is just a truth at this point, you know, and what we've seen is, you know, learning has largely gotten democratized. If you know where to look, you can learn anything at this point for free. And not only can you learn anything for free, you can largely learn at an Ivy league level from the world's best for free or nearly free. Learning is effectively already democratized. Learning is already effectively accessible and free. And yet college isn't. And what does that tell us? Which is what we are paying for in university is not the learning. That is not what where the value is. That's not what that product is, not to us, not to the market. Learning is free. College is very expensive. Like the so yeah, you know, but, but believe d- deeply that it's that it's about the signal. Given that you can learn so much online for free, as you say, why don't more people do that? Because learning is very hard. It's messy. It's organic, and as it turns out, it's really hard to do. So we've been talking about skills in the context of an employment arrangement, but you took a different path. You decided to become a founder. How did you learn that skill? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, the very short version of my story is I was actually all in on being a great student and I was a great student and, you know, I wasn't a good or natural entrepreneur. I'm not the kid with the, you know, stories of sort of their drop out of university, entrepreneurial hustle, hustle, you know, pursuit. I was the, you know, jump, you say jump, I say how high, you know, color inside the lines, working within the system for the system's validation. I was a great student. And, you know, my journey has essentially been realizing sort of, holy shit, this is a system. 
I'm a product of this system. And I didn't, once I saw it that way, I didn't really like what the system had turned me into. And that's what kind of lit the fire in my belly to turn around and say, well, we've, we've, you know, we've optimized this system for some crazy stuff and we've got to do some work on, you know, changing the system. And so for me, how did I become a good entrepreneur and, and founder? It was critically important for me. I joined a startup so I effectively could watch and listen and learn from others, from both their talents and success, as well as their shortcomings and failures. And I think that was really critical for me to have. I don't think I would have been successful if I, if I had somehow come to these ideas, dropped out of college, my junior year started something. I don't, I just don't think I would have been successful. I didn't have the right orientation, the right skills, the right mix, the right attitude. So it took me intentionally kind of learning, but I did so on the job. I did so in some ways you could sort of say almost in that apprenticeship model, which is go and, and, do it under the tutelage of someone else first. And Dwayne is the CEO of the startup I joined. She's still to this day, the only CEO I've worked for. And so a lot of my, you know, what I believe, you know, model of, of good leadership looks like came from learning from Anne Dwayne. You know, a lot of my principles that I lead by, you know, are really sort of isms that um, I learned from her. If you don't know that name, she's uh, one of the founding managing directors at Village Global, the, the venture capital firm now. But yeah, so learn by doing, learn by seeing others do it, others do it well. And as you've started multiple companies, what have you changed about your approach as a founder? So I've, I've co-founded three companies, Degreed, um, Learn In, and Book Club. And Degreed got started in 2012 and Learn In and Book Club got started in 2020, both. And Degreed has gone on to be a global company, uh, successful. We, we serve about uh, half of the Fortune 100, you know, 10 million people worldwide, hundreds of employees uh, around the world. And, you know, I guess what surprised me most is when I went to start Learn In and Book Club, just finding, you know, I, I sort of thought, hey, I have a playbook. I've done this once, you know, rinse, repeat, and just finding how differently the combination of sort of the, the founding team and the early people and the problem sets and the, the different problem statements and different, you know, customer base, just how unique every challenge feels. And in hindsight, I don't know that I should have been all that surprised by it. But, you know, so I think I was surprised by how many things change, how many things are maybe different. But I would say in having had the experience of starting multiple companies, you do, uh, it gives you the benefit of seeing some principles or some truths that seem to hold across kind of any experience. And I love Ray Dalio's book, Principles. You know, I love trying to think in those terms. You know, I love kind of searching out and trying to find what are those things that, that you know, sort of hold true in the human experience and, and sort of across, you know, the different experiences. In that vein, is there a principle by which you decided it was time to start another company? Oh, <laughs> no. Deciding to start a company is wrapped up in all sorts of just kind of, you know, life and, and personal dynamics, you know, and I'd say maybe just at the end of the day, kind of the fire in the belly, you know, education is a problem I've been working on for the entirety of my adult life. I, I hope and plan to kind of be working on it in one way or another, the entirety of uh, the rest of my adult life. You know, while I've been able to 
contribute to and solve, you know, for a couple of problems, there's certainly plenty of, you know, plenty of problems still out there that need to get solved. So I just say fire in the belly. So it's recognizing a problem and feeling like I've got to be the one to solve that. Yeah. The cost of not solving it is worth the pain of stepping into the arena to try and solve it. Because anyone who's done a startup knows, you know, it's, it's a tough road. Like it's, I, I tell people I'm an education reformer by choice. I'm an entrepreneur by necessity. Like I actually don't um, aspire or to the life of the entrepreneur. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's tough. You know, it's really, really tough. So you got to love the problem. What do you think makes it the most challenging? I mean, I do think hard thing about hard things did a good job at kind of giving everyone a common reference point to like I, you know, and the zeitgeist is to just, you know, startups are unavoidably hard. What makes it hardest? You know, if you are working sort of at the, if you are working at the edge of a problem, trying to solve it in a way that no one else has sort of ever done before, you know, you're doing so with a team of people, all of which are, you know, imperfect and the combination of which creates, you know, you, you, it's both a, a privilege to work with great people. Inevitably, you know, we're all human and, and how we come together poses its own limitations and, and fault lines. And I think almost inevitably, unless you, know, you get luckier than, than anyone I've seen, I mean, just under the stakes and the pressure of people's lives and careers and investors' money and the responsibility and the trust of clients, you're solving, you're solving things in an environment that just has a lot of pressure in it. And I think it's largely unavoidable. It's just a, it's an equation that has a lot of pressure and some people really just love and thrive on the, almost just the, the act of startups, just the the thrill of it. If, if they treat it like a game and getting good at the game, you know, me for my part, again, I've always done it for a sort of insatiable need to work on the problem and try and see the world look a little bit more the way it should. A lot of the startup um, pressures have caught up to me in ways that, you know, I mean, I've had, I've made for some tough days, some tough weeks and, you know, moments and tough years. Yeah, I hear that. Paul Graham talks about it as moral weight. And uh, mm -hmm. when you, when you reference the hard thing about hard things book, uh, Ben Orwitz, his picture that comes to mind for me is the scene of him growing up in the bathroom from stress and fear. Yeah, there was a entrepreneur who told me very early on, you know, Silicon Valley went through because I was, I was in San Francisco for the first 10 years of starting to greed and I'm part of the COVID migration and I've since moved to kind of my hometown. But, um, you know, Silicon Valley, I mean, just the sentiments and mood changed over time as well, which is when I got out there, you know, it, it, people really weren't that vulnerable. They weren't that honest in public um, settings. The expectation was that you were sort of always, you know, um, optimistic and things were up and to the right and you were, you know, killing it or crushing it and, and, you know, but I had an entrepreneur who I didn't actually know that well. We met at an event, we did coffee or lunch, you know, and he, he talked to me and I mean, he just shared about how at some moment, you know, he was in the shower and he slumped down to the floor, you know, and just bawled his eyes out until the water turned cold, you know, 40 minutes later. And, you know, and it was a bit of a gift because, you know, inevitably sort of that moment would come for me. And there was just something deeply reassuring about knowing, you know, he had faced a moment sort of that dark and that hard and had, you know, survived to tell the tale 
And just simply having that to, to hold on to, you know, made a huge difference to me. And, and I think the conversation around mental health founders and mental health, you know, the conversation around startups has gotten more honest, a bit more intimate and vulnerable, such that it's now largely okay to share that part of the experience as a founder, as a startup, you know, and not have it somehow be held against you by the market or by VCs or, or whatnot. So kudos for that. Do you think it's healthy for people to talk about the challenges, the extreme stress, as well as the highs and the successes? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the right balance is, is somewhere in the middle. I mean, you've got to, you got to talk about the, the reasons we do it and celebrate the, celebrate the wins to, to make it all worth it. And, you know, there's a something healthy about, you know, having some, place for the conversation about what makes it hard, challenging, you know, so when those moments come, you know, it can, it can be a less shitty experience. And being involved in multiple startups at one time, is that more or less stressful for you? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly creates the risk of more, more stress. You know, I mean, you, you layer one stressful situation on top of a second stressful situation. Thankfully, the ebbs and flows of the startups have largely kind of ebbed and flowed well, where, you know, the demands of one, you know, if the demands get high or if, you know, it's the pressure point or high stakes moment, you know, there haven't been too, too many times where those felt like they landed right on top of each other. But yeah, it's certainly a risk for more. I think there is some benefit to, you know, what is this fairly still rarefied experience of, of being the founder of um, and CEO of multiple venture backed businesses you know, which is at some level, it forces you to evaluate, you know, the help you can give and the role you have to play and to be very focused and intentional and deliberate in that. It requires that and necessitates, you know, that you've got great people around you and that you empower and enable them. It has the sort of added benefit of, I think, actually keeping your personal self-worth and identity not wrapped up in the company. I know, you know, when I founded Degreed, I was Degreed, Degreed was me, you know, so much of my self-worth and identity was wrapped up in Degreed. And I think there's something deeply unhealthy about that. You know, Degreed has a bad day and I'm having a bad day because they are one in the same. I think running multiple companies, it's just different. And so it, it almost you know, it's, it's kind of harder to put your self-worth or your identity into one. And, you know, if one's having a great day and the other one's having a shitty day, what does that mean about my day? Well, you know, me, I'm, I'm something different than these companies. You know, I can have uh, a different emotional experience than, than where the companies are. And so I think that's a uh, unique and, you know, somewhat uh, advantaged and, and healthy in the entrepreneurial journey to kind of have seen, been able to see and feel a little bit of emotional distance from, you know, having your entire identity wrapped up in your company. I'm really glad you brought up this point about identity. I have a theory that you're most healthy if you can keep your identity pretty small. So the fewer things that you attach to it. Mm. And mm -hmm. I agree with you as a founder, it's very tough not to become identified with your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think probably for most of my life, I might've, you know, felt that cutting across kind of how I viewed the world or would have maybe taken issue with it. But I think I've, you know, survived, gone through enough of these kind of identity crises to appreciate that. Yeah. You really want your identity to stand on its own 
you know, your self-worth is independent of not because of, you know, your, I mean, at the end of the day, the list it should be independent from should be long. And I think, you know, to your point, the, your identity should be wrapped up in, in probably a very short list of things. So I like that. Would you have any other advice for aspiring founders? No one, no one warned me. So here's, here's something I never heard that I came to our nervous systems evolved in the fight or flight mode, you know, in the jungle. And just because now our stressors are not lions that are actually at risk of eating us, you know, our nervous system still interpret stress and threats, you know, as, as effectively life, life threatening and being in the jungle fight or flights always comes to resolution. You fight the lion, you kill it. There's a resolution. You fight the lion, it eats you. There's resolution. You run away and you get away. There's resolution. You know, you run away and it catches you, it eats you, you die. There's resolution. You know, starting a startup was once there was an article that I read and it said, you know, it feels like you're locked in a cage with a lion and you're just trying not to get eaten. And that is, that resonated so deeply with me. And, you know, it'd take me a couple more years to just appreciate and like actually understand, you know, like that really is how it felt. Like doing a startup felt like a life or death situation. It felt like I was locked in a cage with a lion for many years without any resolution. You know, it's just the type of stress the human body was not actually meant to ever sustain. That level of threat was meant to have resolution. And I think maybe that makes a difference for someone hearing it. I think on the other side of it, what you've got to do is really just deeply appreciate, sort of give yourself permission to fail. I think you have to get to a place where you're able to kind of carry it in a healthy and positive way. And I think that's going to mean something different for everyone. But, you know, as a starting point, I would actually suspect that that more people than not starting their own business, being a founder, you know, raising venture capital money is quickly going to bring them to a place which many, if not, you know, majority of entrepreneurs feel, which is just, you know, that huge pressure, that huge that huge weight and you, you got to find a way to kind of square it and carry it and, you know, and do so from a healthy place. Well, thank you for sharing more about your journey and being open about that. I hope that serves our listeners well, and I think it will. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Very welcome. Where can people learn more online? Yeah. So I'm David Blake. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn at David Blake, you know, LinkedIn backslash I N backslash David Blake. You can email me d at davidblake.com or you can go check out Degreed, which is degreed.com or bookclub, bookclub.com. And Degreed's a lifelong learning profile that helps enterprise organizations see what everyone's learning. And Bookclub is a enterprise platform for teams to read books and have uh, conversations they might not otherwise be having. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.